This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get into our study this morning, let's go to the Lord for guidance as we study his word. Our Father, Scripture tells us that you are light, and it is in your light that we see light. And it is under your authority and your grace that we are, our minds are enlightened to an understanding of the truth of your word. And Father, as we study today, as we read through the scriptures and think about what we are taught, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will enlighten us as to how to understand your, your words and how to apply them to our lives, that we may be strengthened and that we may mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and that our spiritual life will be strong and reflect your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 2, where last week I began in the first, finished the previous chapter and began into the second chapter. And as we get into the second verse, there's a lot in this verse. I touched on several things last week, but I want to reflect some more upon this, especially in terms of its implication and application. A question that we should all ask ourselves on a regular basis is, do we really love the study of God's Word? Do we really love to know God's Word? I've been involved in church, having grown up in church all my life. I've been in different kinds of churches. I've been involved with different types of ministries, from camping ministries to home Bible study ministries, ministries teaching uh, at one time, I taught a number of Bible studies during the during lunchtime hour downtown in various uh, office buildings as, as uh, I was invited by people to come and host a Bible study. So I've seen a lot of different people from a, and a lot of different Christians from a lot of den- denominations. But one thing that I've noticed over all the years is that there are a lot of people who think that they love the Word. But when life gets tough or when they reach a level of sort of self-satisfaction, that's when we discover the answer to the question, do we really love to know God's Word? And the reason we should love to know God's Word is not for some academic reason, just because it stimulates our intellect. For that it does. And a lot of people stop there. And they just love the stimulation, the thought, the learning of doctrine, the learning of theology, the learning of God's Word. But the study of God's Word is a means to an end. And the end is to know God. 
The end is to then be able to live on the basis of God's plan for our life that God will be glorified and that we can fulfill the mission that God has given to every single believer generally and our ministry that God has given to each of us specifically in terms of our own spiritual gifts and uh, spiritual abilities. In the last few weeks as we have gone through the end of chapter Colossians 1 and the first uh, <clears throat> five verses of uh, Colossians 2, Paul has been very personal in his in his explanation of of the word and his life and his role as an apostle and his love for those to whom he ministers and how he has uh, given of his life so much and encountered many struggles, many uh, conflicts, he puts it in verse 1, much opposition and much personal adversity and suffering for the objective of enabling believers to understand the truth of God's word and to live for God. Because fundamentally, if we just think about it, if there's only one truth, and that's the word of God, then really nothing else matters than knowing God's word and understanding who we are designed by him. But if we don't live as if that's really important, then no matter what we say with our lips in terms of the significance of God's word and the importance of God's word, then it really isn't important. Now, we're going to stress that, understand that importance of God's word in different ways with different emphases as we grow and mature as believers, but um, fundamentally we have to understand that, that this is a bedrock to our life that knowing the word is more important than anything else in life because there really is a God and he really has communicated to us. And if there really is a God and he really has communicated to us, then nothing else really matters than being able to know him through his word because that then provides us with the consequences of being able to live life to the fullest and being happy and being fulfilled in our life not because of our circumstances, but because we understand who we are as creatures of the uh, cre- creatures of God, who have been given uh, many many blessings. So we begin in just a little review in Colossians two verse one, where Paul says, "I want you to know what a great conflict, what a tremendous struggle, or I have for you." And those also in Laodicea. Laodicea was 12 miles down the road from Colossae. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, or those whom I've never had any direct personal conflict with, which were many in both churches, because at this point Paul had never been to Colossae or to Laodicea. But what's the purpose of his enduring these struggles? Last time I looked at passages in Second Corinthians where we learned of all these different uh, adversities that Paul faced. He was shipwrecked. He was uh, beaten. He, was, he, he went without food. He's uh, traveling constantly, walking everywhere uh, along uh, those, the Roman highways throughout uh, Turkey, throughout uh, Greece, and camping on the side of the road. He'd been imprisoned numerous times, thrown in jails that weren't very large, not much larger than probably the smallest bathroom in your house. And, uh, and this, he endured this for a reason. 
because he understood that the word of God was true. God had commissioned him for a purpose, and he understood that nothing was of more significance for people than to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them, and that by believing in Christ, they could have eternal life. And that phrase, eternal life, doesn't just mean life without end, but it means a richness and a fullness of life that enables us to reach all of the potential and that God has, has given us. So the end game, that which gives him the ability to live through whatever opposition and adversity he faced, is expressed in Colossians 2.2 that their hearts may be encouraged. That's why he endured all this, to strengthen the souls. Hearts there is just a, a figure of speech, a, a metaphor for the entire uh, uh, immaterial part of our nature. It's sometimes used as a synonym for the soul, sometimes a synonym for the mind, a few times as a synonym for emotion, but often it stands for the inner part of man and all that that represents, his mentality, his emotion, his conscience, everything, that their hearts, their spiritual life, uh, may be strengthened, being knit together in love. Now, I looked at these two words last time, uh, encourage from parakaleo, which has different ideas. It expresses encouragement, strengthening, uh, challenge. Um, these are some of those ideas, comfort. All of that's wrapped up in this word that their souls may be strengthened to face whatever there may be by being they have a, a participle of means there by being knit together or united together, uh, united together by means of love. So it brings into our thought stream here the significance and the role that love plays. Then we have another phrase, and attaining to all, and it should read all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. So we're, his goal is that we are united in love. Now, today we live in a world that really doesn't understand much about love. Very few people do. You hear all kinds of things. You can go on PBS and every now and then there's somebody who has a lecture series on love and you just wonder uh, where he got his information. It's mostly just based on empirical studies and empirical observations. But the Word of God gives us our real starting point for understanding love, and that is simply expressed in passages such as uh, Romans 5.8, John 3.16, God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that tells us what love is. That is God's picture for us of where love begins. It is doing all that we can do for the best interests of those to whom we are ministering. Whenever we use a word like best or better or good, those comparative um, adjectives, they always reflect some absolute by which you're comparing that. Now, a lot of people think that what's best for the object of my love is what I want for them. And that's a selfish-centered love. The only way we can identify what is best for somebody else is if we have an external, eternal absolute of right and what is best. And the only way we can ever know that is for his word. That's why as Christians we understand that the only way we can truly, genuinely love somebody is to do it on the basis of who God is and who we are as creatures in the 
created in the image and likeness of God. And love is not something you can command that somebody can turn on and off in an instant. It is something that we grow and mature in as we learn other things and as we learn to put aside this, uh, the default self-centeredness of our own sin natures and replace it with something that goes beyond a self-centered uh, narcissistic orientation of, of our own uh, fallen self. And so this can only come as we focus on the Lord. The only way to get love, real love, genuine biblical love, operational in our own souls, is going to come through knowing God. There's no other way to do it. You can't just sit around and sing kumbaya and hold hands and have a warm, glowing experience. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they need to be defined on the basis of the character of God. That's what gives strength to any emotional uh, experience or times when we feel certain, certainly sentimental about certain things. There's nothing wrong with those th- being emotional or sentimental and expressing our love towards others. We do that all the time with family, with close friends we haven't seen in a long time, but it's got to be grounded on something else other than just emotion and sentiment. So it does, that just doesn't free float. There has to be something of real substance and integrity upon which that rests. And so as Paul expresses the goal of his ministry, which has to do with what should be the goal of our lives, he uses this, this uh, terminology that his goal is to, uh, that our hearts, our soul may be strengthened. Well, how do you strengthen your heart? What's the basis for having a strong soul? And it's a combination or compound object here uh, that their hearts might be encouraged by, first of all, being knit together in love, and secondly, by attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Now, I want to break that phrase down a little bit. I hit it briefly last time, but I want to break it down for us a little more this morning because we have this string of genitives there, the riches of the full understanding, I mean, of the full assurance of understanding. And and what does this actually mean? How How should we comprehend it and understand it? Well, first of all, this word that's translated riches is the Greek word plutos, which can be translated riches, but also wealth, abundance uh, of something. And in this context, it's and in similar context where it's followed by usually by a genitive, the wealth of something, the abundance of something, it's used in sort of an, an adjectival or descriptive way, the, the, the abundance of God's grace or the wealth of God's provision. It's, it's describing the, the, a, a, in a superlative way the, the expanse of all that God has provided for us. So when Paul says, has this idea here that we may go, reach the goal, uh, the English word attaining is put there simply as an expression of the fact that you have a Greek preposition here indicating the goal, the objective, that the goal and objective has to do with actualizing in our own lives or bringing into full experience in our own lives the, uh, the understanding of our, the wealth, the abundance, the fullness of everything that we have in Christ. See, when I say we have to ask ourselves a question, do we really love 
the Word of God, do we really love to know the Word of God, that's the only way we can know about the wealth, the abundance, the riches that God has given us. You don't find out about it any other way. And part of the key to living a life where you experience all of the fullness, all the happiness, all the richness that God has for each of us as believers is because you have to learn what it is that God has given you so that you can live on the basis of that. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're not any different from somebody who's living under a bridge somewhere in, in some urban area of the United States, unaware of the fact that they've got a billion dollars in a bank account somewhere. But yet that's the life of many Christians. I'd say it's probably the life of most Christians. They're, they're living like a, 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 a homeless person, completely ignorant of the fact that they've got a billion dollars in a bank account somewhere, and it's all theirs. They haven't learned that they have it, and they don't have no clue how to use it. And that's true of many Christians. They really don't understand the wealth of what God has given us, the abundance of grace that God has already given us at salvation, or how to live on the basis of that so that they can encounter and face any number of problems, difficulties, challenges, whatever in life, and still have emotional stability because it's grounded on that which never changes, which is the character of God. As we sang this morning in the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, in the third verse he says, that we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. That's what he's talking about is all of these, all of these blessings. Paul mentions this numerous places. For example, in Romans 11, 11.33, we read, Oh, the depth of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God. That's that wealth that we have. That's, he's, he's, he's using the term of riches there in the same way the abundance of wisdom and knowledge. It's ours. It's available to us. God's given you everything you need to know. Yet how much of it do you know? And you can only know it by studying his word. This was a primary focus of Paul's ministry. In Ephesians 3.8, he said to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach or that I should proclaim uh, the good news. It's the word uh, evangelizo, the verb evangelizo, which is related to announcing the good news. It's one of the full senses of the gospel here. The good news of the abundance, the abundant wealth of Christ, the un- or the unsearchable wealth of Christ. That word unsearchable doesn't mean we can't know it. It's just that we can't know it on our own. It is beyond anything that, that we can ever imagine. And so we, we can only get there through a study of the Word. Ephesians 1.3 is a passage I quote many times. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is the richness, the wealth, the abundance that's ours. It's one of those things that God does for every person the instant they trust in Christ is he opens up a bank account and puts a billion dollars in there for your spiritual life. So how do you learn about that? Only through studying his word. How do you learn how to then manage that, those resources, those spiritual blessings? Only by studying God's word. You can't get there any other way. 
So he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Peter says it another way. He says, as God's divine power has given to us all things, not some things, not most things, not a few things, but all things that pertain to life and godliness. The two words that are used there indicate both our physical life. The word for life there, bios, has to do with our physical life. And the word there that's translated godliness is a word, eusebeia, which has to do with our spiritual life. God didn't forget. He didn't say, okay, I'm just going to give you some spiritual blessings and living the Christian life is is just going to church and living in another a plane. You know, that's more like Eastern mysticism. But it's they're related. You get everything related to life so that you can fulfill that which God has planned for you. He's not going to give us resources we don't need to accomplish the goal or that which will distract us from accomplishing the goal. Some people say, well, I'd really like to have that prosperity test. Well, I've had a number of people who've been richly blessed and richly prospered by God, and they say nothing was more distracting from their spiritual life than to have physical material prosperity because when they didn't have it, they had to wake up every morning and pray that God would get them through the day, and they were consciously dependent upon God's power to face everything. But when they had everything, then they forgot about God. So he's given us everything related to our physical life so that we can achieve that which he has for us and our spiritual life through the knowledge of him. It's not apart from the knowledge of him. It's not by going off in your closet, gazing at your navel, and trying to come up with some sort of spiritual uh, insight. It's through the knowledge of God's word. Every now and then, I, I, as I have gone through the years of a pastor, pastor, I run into people who you just haven't seen them in church for a while. And you ask the question, well, how come you're not going to church? Well, you know, I pretty much learned all I need to learn. Or you see people who go to uh, a Bible church where they are taught well, and then they end up in some other church where they're not taught very well, but they have uh, some of the other things that people do in churches, and they enjoy the fellowship or the fun or whatever it is, but they're not learning anything. And and you ask the question, so you, you learned it all? Well, no, I really didn't. But you set, your, your, set the bar so low that by your actions you said that you learned it all. And so now you can go off somewhere and just kind of play at being a Christian because you thought you learned all you needed to learn. And, and most of us in this life probably won't learn more than 10 or 15% of what we need to learn. No matter how satisfied you may be with your level of knowledge of God's Word or your level of knowledge of uh, of doctrine or whatever, uh, you're not going to get there in terms of spiritual maturity because we don't know enough. I, I hate to tell you this. You may not like learning, but God has infinite knowledge, and he's not going to give us infinite knowledge when we get our resurrection bodies and go to heaven, which means you're going to have a lot to learn a billion times a billion years from now. You still won't reach omniscience. So I hate to tell you, but heaven is not just sitting around, flying around with wings on, uh, which we don't have, uh, playing harps, sitting on a cloud, or some of these other images people have. We're going to be learning a lot. God gives his creatures responsibilities, things to carry out. It just He doesn't even communicate this to us. 
in his word because we can't comprehend what that's going to be like. It's, it's beyond us. So God has, we, we have everything related to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, that is by that knowledge, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's in his word. I don't think any of us can even think that we've gotten close to arriving at any destiny in terms of the scale of spiritual maturity unless we've memorized all the promises in the Word of God. That's first grade, almost. So that'll just give you a little challenge for uh, the rest of the year. Something maybe to put in a New Year's resolution in three or four months. I need to memorize 20 new promises next year. Well, there's thousands in the Word, and and... You can't, you can't claim, we're going, we need, we need to apply a promise in all kinds of circumstances where we can't get to the word to find the promises. So what do we do? It's got to be in our soul and we need to learn those. So we have these uh, riches and it is through those promises that we became, become partakers of the divine nature. And what that means is that we benefit from, from God's grace. And our, when we grow, Scripture says we're being, God is conforming us to the image of Christ. That's the idea of partaking in the divine nature is we become more and more Christ-like. The character of Christ is formed in us by God the Holy Spirit. So we have to learn to live upon the sufficiency of God's Word. That's what this is talking about. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and it's in His Word. That tells us that... This is, God's Word is sufficient. You don't need to go anywhere else to get the knowledge. God's Word is all you need. You don't need to go read some self-help book. You don't need to lis- listen to some motivational guru. You have everything you need right now to excel in your spiritual life from the Word of God. And yet, sadly, so many people get so excited because they go read some new book written by somebody, whether it's a Christian or a theologian or whatever, and, and they don't get as excited about his word. Now, Colossians 2 goes on to say that this is the riches till we attain to the wealth or the abundance of the what? The full assurance of something. This is a Greek word, uh, plerosophia. Plerao, we know, it's a word that means fullness of something, and Sophia is wisdom. So that word, those words were combined to indicate a conviction, a confidence, a certainty about something. So we have to understand that what we're getting is we have a wealth, we have a, an abundance of, of something. And that abundance of something comes from understanding, uh, comes from the full assurance from understanding. So uh, at the bottom of that block, I've paraphrased this. We come to the riches or the abundance which comes from or results from the full assurance of something. See, we don't really come to understand how much is in the bank account and how to use it until we're sure it's ours. And the only way we become sure it's ours is because we have to learn it from God's word. That's the understanding part. So the, the, the confidence comes from understanding. And this is the word sunesis, which means the comprehension or perception, understanding, intelligence, or comes to mean the idea of the content of our understanding or what we know to be true, what we understand. 
So it's the assurance based on what we understand. We have a confidence and a conviction based on what we understand to be true. To understand something, you have to learn it. To learn it means you have to study it. To study it means you have to mentally sweat, you have to plan, prioritize, and prepare to be in Bible class more than three times a week every day. Now, that doesn't mean you have to sit down and listen to a whole class every day. You can just listen for 15 or 20 minutes. But there's that constant reminder and that teaching that fortifies our soul because we forget very, very easily and very, very quickly what God has provided for us. So the way that our hearts are strengthened is twofold, by being united in love. Now, today we have a lot of people who focus on unity, but it's unity at the expense of what we believe. It's unity for the sake of unity. But Scripture says our unity is a unity of the faith, so it's a unity based on knowing certain things to be true. There is an, a, 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 there is a group of doctrines. There is a layer of teaching and belief in, in God, expressed in God's Word that, is, that you can't compromise on. And it starts with the Scripture as the inerrant, infallible Word of God and the sufficient revelation of God, and it proceeds through an understanding of the Trinity, the understanding of the deity of Christ and all that Christ provided for us on the cross, the role and work of God the Holy Spirit today within the church and our role in ministry within a local church as well. And that just starts to just very briefly hit on the basic doctrines that are foundational that we can't compromise on. And when people start compromising on certain doctrines, then it's not a unity of the faith. It's just unity for the sake of unity. So our hearts are strengthened, first of all, by being united in love, and secondly, by the, by the uh, realizing, coming to a goal of understanding and applying the, all of the things that God has given us in Christ. And that only comes from studying his word. So let me kind of summarize what I've said here and the emphasis here. First of all, the goal of the Christian life is unity. We should be united together or brought together, bound together, grow together. And it's not for the sake of unity for unity's sake, but a unity of the faith. That's the first thing. Second thing that Paul says is that this unity is uniquely expressed by the manifestation of love within the body of Christ. That's a goal. That doesn't happen instantly when you're saved. Because first of all, you have to get rid of all the superficial, sentimental, shallow notions of love that have been that you've been brainwashed from all the romance movies you've seen and all of the uh, uh, silly little trite sayings you get on Hallmark cards and all these other things, that that really doesn't have anything to do uh, to do with biblical love. So we have to come to understand that we don't really know that much about, about what love experiences, what love is. Wait a minute here. I'm trying to uh, find something. Uh, let me just skip past a couple of things. Okay. We have to understand what love is. And this goes back to understanding some basic commandments in Scripture. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, the night before he went to the cross, he gave his disciples a lot of instructions 
that were all related to what the spiritual life would be like after he left and after he ascended to heaven. And he gave a new commandment. He said a new com- in John 30, 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This sets the bar very high. This is something that is going to distinguish the way a, a believer, a mature believer, lives and operates and relates to other people from everybody else. It, it, it's manifested in how we treat people and how we handle people. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. Now, if that's the standard, then the only way you can know how to love somebody else is how? By going through the Scripture and analyzing how Christ related to everybody in his environment. Immediately, you're going to run into places where Christ had a hostile confrontation with the legalistic Pharisee. Wasn't he loving that Pharisee? Sure he was. And so love is not always this sort of ooey-gooey, I'm just going to always approve of everything you do kind of thing. Love is expressed in terms of holding to a standard And when that standard is violated, then there has to be a challenge to return to the standard. Without the challenge, there really isn't any love. So love is not just this this sort of permissive approval of everything somebody does. That's that's how it's expressed a lot. You hear this from your kids. You probably said it when you were a kid. Your parents corrected you and disciplined you, and you said, you don't love me anymore. See, you just you know, proclaimed a satanic lie at that point. They Actually, what they were demonstrating was genuine love, if it was done right. They were expressing genuine love in correcting you, and what you were doing was just articulating pure human viewpoint nonsense that's designed to confuse everybody as to what love really is. So... We're to love one another, and Ephesians 4.32 tells us a little bit about what is also involved in that, where Paul says we're to be kind to one another. See, it's the love for one another isn't just the idea uh, of, of doing good things for people or helping people or just the idea of, of not having certain mental attitude sins towards them where we're not jealous, we're not angry, we're not bitter, but I'm not going to have anything to do with you. There's a positive initiation of action. We're kind to one another. That's not just staying away. It is an engagement. That's what happens in the story of the Good Samaritan where uh, a Jew is traveling uh, and he is beaten up, accosted by uh, a gang on the road and all of his clothes and everything are stolen and a Samaritan and there's a tremendous uh, hostility and prejudice between Jews and those who were Samaritans and a Samaritan comes by and takes him to his house and gives him clothes all of this positive thing to somebody who, who despises him he gives him things he gives him clothes and he provides for him that's the sense of what love is in scripture it's not just I'm not going to Uh, be angry with you, I'm not going to be irritated with you, I'm not going to commit any negative sins. It's a positive engagement. So Paul says we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Once again, how did God in Christ forgive us? If you don't know the word, if you don't know scripture and really understand the biblical doctrine of forgiveness, how can you forgive other people? You don't come to Bible class to learn the word. You don't come to church to learn the word. How are you ever going to exchange your self-centered concept of forgiveness for a biblical grace-based forgiveness? So when we talk about love in the scripture, there are different aspects to love that are emphasized in different passages. There's a non-personal aspect to love. Sometimes we use the term unconditional. By that, we simply mean that, that the person that we are being kind to and gracious to is not necessarily somebody we know. It's not based on our knowledge of them. Well, they may be a complete stranger. But nevertheless, we are going to treat them a certain way and treat them at a level of kindness and graciousness simply because they are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or someone created in the image and likeness of God. Sometimes it's easier to do that because we don't know them than it is some people we know who are family members or close friends because we think we can get away with being irritated and grumpy and say things that we know we shouldn't say because they're close friends or family members. But in the personal aspect, we need to come to know each other. And, and that applies to a congregation. This is why we have events like yesterday with the picnic and we have family nights and things like that because we can't really get to know each other here if the only time we see each other is when we come in at 1029 for church on Sunday morning and we leave as soon as amen is pronounced and the last song is sung or we only come on Tuesday night or Thursday night and we sit and we nod hi or hello to people we recognize or sit by and then we go on. But the body of Christ is presented in Scripture is a group of people who are ministering to one another. That involves different levels of knowledge of one another. Now, we can't know everybody. I don't know everybody. I don't even, can't even remember everybody's names, and the older I get, the more that's a problem. But if I, we don't get to know one another, then then how can we come to understand how we can be, a, 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 be somehow involved in ministry in one another's lives, which is what the Scripture presents as a body of Christ that is being the body of Christ here in Colossians 2.2 is what is being united together by means of love. So if we don't know each other, we just stay in our little isolated space and we never get to know anybody else here, then how does that how do we fulfill this? You know, it always amazes me, the shallowness, and this happened here not too long ago, the shallowness, superficiality of some people who they go to a church and they say, well, I went to that church for a while, but they're not very friendly. Well, what did you do to get to know people? Well, nothing. Okay, the, the degree to which people are going to get to know you is the degree to which you are exercising some effort to get to know other people. If you come in, and some, some of you, I know, uh, many of us, we like our privacy. We're private people. 
So it takes us a while to kind of come and come to church. And I understand that nobody's saying, okay, you have to jump into some level of intimate relationships with everybody else in church real fast. That doesn't happen. Some churches are that way, and it just promotes a very superficial level of, of, of fellowship and knowledge. But that, that it's, that's all it is. It's just superficial because it's, it's done through some artificial means. But this is, this is the, what Paul is describing here is that which is going to come as a result of our, of our growth our spiritual growth, and our involvement with other people in the church in which we're involved. Another thing we've seen in this passage is that the unifying aspect of love is inseparable from the knowledge aspect. You can't really love one another if you don't love God. And Scripture has a lot to say about what's involved in loving God. Our love for God, Scripture says, is only as robust as our knowledge of God. It doesn't matter how you feel about God. Sometimes we feel very close and intimate with God. Sometimes we don't. Feelings are not a barometer in Scripture of our maturity or our love for God. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. It tells us right away that there is a correlation between our obedience to the Word and our love for God. But you can't obey what you don't know. And you can't know it if you don't take the time to study it and make it a priority to internalize it. In John 14, a lot is said about loving God. And it's all connected to obeying his commandments. In John 14, 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That is an intimacy of our fellowship with God expressed there. But it is predicated upon learning and applying what we know. In verse 23, Jesus said to them, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's not talking about the impersonal uh, uh, or positional indwelling of the Father and the Son and the believer. That's talking about the fellowship that we have, the intimacy that we can have with the Father and the Son in terms of our own spiritual life and our walk with the Lord. John 14, 24, Jesus goes on to say, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. He goes on to expand on this theme in the 15th chapter of John. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, if you're Christ-like, what do you do? You abide in the Father's commandments, which means you have to know them. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So the pattern is Christ. You have to study that, study the word to know that. Then John some 70 years later, writes First John. He's had 70 years to think about what Jesus said, and so he intensifies it a little bit in his first epistle. In First John 3.10, he said, in, the, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. And by that he doesn't mean whether you're saved or not saved. It's whether you're living like a child of God or whether you're living like a child of Satan. He said, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. He's not talking about salvation there because there are a lot of believers who still live like they're 
children of the world because they don't know any better. They haven't studied the word. They don't know any better. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. But it takes time to love your brother. It's not something that instantly happens the day you're saved, the next day you're, you, you love your brother as yourself. That doesn't happen. 1 John 3, 14, uh, 3, 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life. This is not talking about eternal death and condemnation to, to eternal life. It's talking about living like a dead person. You're spiritually alive, but you haven't learned or grown spiritually, so you still live like you did when you were an unbeliever. And we Sometimes we refer to this as carnal death or temporal death, as opposed to ex- experiencing the riches and abundance of life. In John 10, Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy. I came to give life, that's eternal life at salvation, and to give life abundantly. That's the richness and fullness of life that is ours as we grow and mature as believers. This is what John says in 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life. In other words, that we're really living on the basis of this new life that we have in Christ because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's a, that's a carnal death. John's not giving a contrast in 1 John between believers and unbelievers, but between growing, maturing believers who are living like it and those who aren't, those who are in fellowship, those who are out of fellowship. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. So when we look at this, another thing that we see in this passage that we say is that the unifying factor in the body of Christ, comes from living in light of the abundance of blessing. The riches which derive from the full assurance of confidence which we have from our understanding of the Word. We have to believe that the Word of God is the total, sufficient, and final, and complete Word of God. But people don't live that way. And I've been surprised this last year because of some of the things that conversations I've had with, with a few people who I thought understood this even a couple of pastors, by the way. The other day I was uh, opened up my email in the morning and I got a uh, usual advertisement from Amazon.com as one of their uh, better customers. And I got a list of the top ten bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller list. And I just kind of skimmed down the list as I was getting ready to click to the next email. Uh, one caught my eye. I think it's number three on the bestseller list this week, this, this last week, and it's called Heaven is for Real. I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, I've just heard about it a couple of times this last year. It's one of a number of books like this that have come out in the last 20 or 30 years dealing with near-death experiences. And it's a story of a uh, young boy named Colton Burpo, who's the son of a pastor in Nebraska. And when he was almost four years old, he had a, a, an appendix burst. And it went undiagnosed for three or four days, during which time he was in the hospital with a high fever and his mind going in and out of, in and out of consciousness. At some point, it seems like he may have died, at least technically medically, for a few seconds. And they brought him back. And over the course of the next several years, things came out that he would say about what he experienced when he was in the hospital and claiming to have a near-death experience. Now, you can never challenge somebody's experience. I don't care who you talk to. Everybody has experiences. It's your interpretation of your experience that we challenge. And a principle I learned years ago as a very young believer was that I was reading a book by uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie when I was in college, and he said we always have to remember 
that we judge our experiences by the Word of God, and we never judge or evaluate or interpret the Word of God on the basis of our experiences. And let me tell you, that's the difference between a believer who can grow and a believer who doesn't. It's because the believer who judges his experiences by the Word of God understands the power, the authority, and the sufficiency of the Word of God. But the believer who hears experiences he can't explain or who are similar to what he thinks he believes as a Christian and tries to conform that to the Word of God is a believer that doesn't understand the sufficiency of God's Word. There are a lot of things that have been said about this particular book. In the book, he lists some, there are some thir- at least 33 different things that are said about what goes on in heaven. Fifteen of them are, excuse me, 18 of them we can confirm from Scripture. So you look at the other 15. How do you know if they're true or not? The only authority on heaven is the Word of God. And if those other 15 things are not said in the Word of God, they're either wrong or God says we don't need to know them. Now, what would you think if I said, I have a book here for you? See if I'll have a book. I've got one right here. I have a book here for you. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in this book. There's some great teachings in this book. There's some stuff in there's some real truth in this book. But it's not all true. But why don't you read the whole book and you can glean some really great principles from this book that are true, but watch out because some of it's not true. It's the Book of Mormon. It's the Bhagavad Gita. It's Freud. See, everybody operating on empiricism or experience has a certain amount of truth to what they say. But the only way you can discern that which is true from that which is false on spiritual things is from the Word of God. So if the Word of God is the only authority on heaven, why would we want to go someplace else to find out some things about heaven when only some of it might be true. And we can't really understand the rest without the truth. There's a, there are websites now. There's coloring books, and what bothers me is that there are Bible studies, not Bible studies, but there are study groups that study this book on heaven is real. Why don't they study the Bible? That's my question this morning. Do you really love the study of God's Word? Well, then go to the Bible to find out about heaven. Don't go to some book like this or go to some of the biblically correct studies that have been written that, are, that, that, that restrict themselves to the Scriptures as our authority to study what the Bible says about heaven. But don't go to something that is outside of the Bible because then you don't know what's true or false and you can get sucked into a lot of, a lot of things. And part of the problem that I see with this book is not so much the book itself, but the fact that what it points out about a lot of Christians is that they're not really committed to the sufficiency and the sole authority of the Bible. Because if they were, they would need to go read some experiential story from some four-year-old. Remember this. What bothers me about this is when the Apostle Paul went to heaven, he came back and he said, I just don't have the words to describe it. So a four-year-old does? Hello? God has told us what we can grasp and what we need to know about heaven. And if we wanted us to know more, he would tell us in his word. So is the word really important to you or 
or is it of such little value that you have to go read a book by a four, about a four-year-old's experience so that you can feel convinced and convicted about the truth of God's Word? If your faith is strengthened by reading this kind of experiential story and it's not strengthened by reading the Word of God, there's a story in the Scripture about an out of, I mean, a near-death experience, but it was a real-death experience. It was when Lazarus died and the rich man died. And Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went to, went to torments. And the rich man begged Abraham, and he said, you know, I've got, I've got brothers. Please send Lazarus back so that he can tell them what will happen. And Abraham said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody's experience. See, it's a, a personal, somebody's experience is, is not only irrelevant, it can be spiritually distracting because what's needed, what we need to know is what's in the law and the prophets. What we need to know is what's in the word. So that's my question this morning. Do you really love the word? Really? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this morning, to recognize that there is just a wealth, there's an abundance of blessings that you have given us beyond anything we can imagine. And they were all given to us at the instant we trusted in Christ. And yet we don't understand them, we don't live in light of them, and consequently many believers just aren't real sure the Christian life is all that it, they thought it was going to be. But the only way to get to that, that understanding is through studying your word. And the confidence, the assurance that we have that comes from your word, not from secondary experiences or somebody else's life story, but confidence that comes from understanding your word. And when we live on the basis of that confidence, then we can experience the riches, the abundance of your grace in our lives. Father, we pray that for anyone who's here this morning that may not understand how to get to heaven that may not be sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, your sins too. Jesus paid the penalty. It's paid in full. All that is required is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says, He who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The issue is faith. Ninety-seven times in the Gospel of John, the issue is believe, 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 believe. That's it. So all you need to do is believe Jesus died for you, and you have eternal life. You're a new creature in Christ, and you have all these blessings as yours. But the only way to know about them and to live on the basis of them is to study your word. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with our need to make the study of your word and its application in our life and our thinking foundational to everything that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.